0: Are you going to see the concert tonight? Are you going to hear it? Okay, you hear and see it, and uh, it's going to happen fast, and you're not going to get it all, and you might even hear the wrong words.
1: Iconic, prolific, legendary, mysterious. These words fail to encapsulate Bob Dylan. Dylan was uniquely himself. And the Hawks' crossing paths with Dylan was the perfect time for both their careers and his. For the Hawks, it was a taste of the big time, working on a level in which tested them as people and as musicians. For Dylan, it was a chance to hoodwink everybody. Dylan wanted to change the game again, from reviving folk to revitalizing rock. The Hawks were the perfect partners or accomplices in Dylan's master plan. This episode, we will be taking a look at the Hawks throughout 1964 to 1966, their time with Dylan and touring the world. It's crucial to begin this episode with Bob Dylan's artistic direction during the years of 1965 and beyond before understanding how the band fits into the equation. For those listening who don't know of Dylan's significance during the 1960s, he was quickly becoming one of the most seminal artists of the era, and quickly becoming one of America's best songwriters. Dylan was at the forefront of the folk revival in the 1960s, during the counterculture era. Famed for his protest songs like The Times, They Are a-Changing, and Blowing in the Wind, were being consumed by youth of the era, making Dylan extremely prolific. It also led to fellow musicians to rethink their own musical identities, namely artists like the Beatles, who you can see a lot of Dylan influence on their 1965 and 1966 albums Rubber Soul and Revolver. And while Dylan was firmly cementing himself in the folk tradition, by 1965, he had a desire to radicalize the sound, try something new. It should be noted that Dylan had begun testing his electric sound during his previous album, bringing it back home. However, he began to experiment harder with sound fully on what eventually led to Highway 61 Revisited. It should be noted that Dylan had begun testing his electric sound during the previous album, bringing it all back home. However, he began experimenting with a harder sound fully on what eventually led to Highway 61 Revisited. Highway 61 Revisited was a seminal moment in music, but it was also a crucial moment for Dylan himself. For the first time in his career, none of the tracks on the album featured just him singing and playing acoustic guitar. By the beginning of May of 64, Dylan had finished his England tour, documented by famed documentarian D.A. Pennybaker's film Don't Look Back. Dylan was complacent with his music, bored of playing the same songs over and over again, regardless of whether people were enjoying them or not. Finishing his 1965 England tour on May 10th at Royal Albert Hall, Dylan had booked time in London with John Mayhall's Bluesbreakers, with whom Eric Clapton was still playing with. They met up at Levy's recording studio for a few sessions. It became remembered more as a jam session. In retrospect, Dylan was just trying to get comfortable with playing with a band and playing electric. He later retreated back to upstate New York. In Woodstock, he started jamming with Michael Bloomfield, the lead guitarist in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. The sessions went similarly to Dylan's time with Clapton and the Blues Breakers. Too much blues. Bloomsfield remembers Dylan even saying, hey man, I don't want any of that BB King stuff. Not only was Dylan's music changing, the production was changing too. Bob Johnson was in the producing chair now for Highway 61 Revisited. Previously, Tom Wilson, who had produced the last few Bob Dylan records, was out. Nothing has officially been confirmed about why this is. But Wilson had problems with Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager, which could have led to the fresh blood that you see in the producer's chair. Dylan later went into Columbia Studio A in New York with some of the same studio musicians that he had used on his previous album, Bringing It All Back Home. The sessions had keyboardist Paul Griffin, drummer Bobby Gregg, along with Bloomfield. A young Al Cooper found his way into the sessions playing organ, even though he was known as a guitarist at the time. Dylan started piecing together the first single, Like a Rolling Stone, during these sessions and the song was released in July of 65. Now, what was incredibly rare about the song was its length. Clocking in at over six minutes, it was a rarity for the radio. Five days later, Dylan and his band appeared as headliners at Newport Folk Festival. It is often stated that this was Dylan's first taste of negative reaction for his electric sound. However, many people have said this is overstated people present during the day apparently were enthusiastic according to eyewitnesses. Noted folk musician and purist Pete Seeger had also been known to have tried to stop Dylan from playing electric while he was on stage, further perpetuating this myth. Following Newport, Dylan went back into the studio in late July and began recording Tombstone Blues, a bluesy outlaw track with a ripping lead by Bloomfield. The second single from the album was Positively 4th Street, with a powerful organ performance by Al Cooper. It ended up number 7 on the Billboard Hot 100. Later, in August, Cooper and Dylan began recording again in Woodstock. Sessions on Just Like Tom Thumb's blues took place. Over 16 takes were done to get the track. Sam Lay of the Butterfield Blues Band was also in the sessions, with Frank Owens on piano. Following Tom Thumb's blues was the song Queen Jane Approximately, done in seven takes, followed by a short session on the crowd-pleaser Ballad of a Thin Man. Last on the nine-song album was a redo of Desolation Row. Originally Dylan and his guitar producer Bob Johnson brought in Nashville picker Charles McCoy to overdub a very distinct Mexican guitar lick. When the album was finally released on August 30th, Dylan called it simply Vision Music.
0: Now, the summer of 1965
1: was an equally seminal moment in the band's history. Mary Martin, a friend of the Hawks from Toronto was working for Albert Grossman, who I'd previously mentioned was Bob Dylan's manager. Martin had suggested that Dylan should inquire about the Hawks as his backing band, as he was about to embark on a major electric tour, his first. Martin was working the Hawks while also pursuing Grossman and Dylan by acquainting the members of the Hawks with Dylan's material through his album, Highway 61 Revisited. Rick Denko recalls Martin coming down often to check out their sets and was friends with various local bands. Danko said Martin became friends with the Hawks and turned them on to Albert Grossman's stable of musicians including famed guitarist and singer Gordon Lightfoot, Richie Havens, and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Interested in hearing what the Hawks offered, as well as a great recommendation from John Hammond Jr., Dylan had them checked out at Tony Mart's as part of their four-month stint in Somers Point, New Jersey. The Hawks were playing for thousands of people, and mixing together an exciting blend of blues and rhythm and soul. Dylan was impressed with the Hawks, and decided to hire Robbie and Levon for two major gigs in late August. One at Forest Hills Tennis Stadium in New York, and one at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. Levon, who was unfamiliar with Dylan and his gravity amongst popular music, I remembers calling Colonel Cudlets to see if Dylan could actually be selling out the massive stadiums he was talking about. Outside of not being familiar with Dylan, the Hawks particularly weren't interested in Robbie and Levon joining him for a few gigs. Richard Manuel called him a strummer, a term the Hawks used for folk singers back then. To say the least, the Hawks weren't that into folk music. The new electric band stood Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm, Harvey Brooks, who had gotten his break by acting as the session bassist on Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited, and Al Cooper. The first gig took place on August 28, 1965. Forest Hills Tennis Stadium was packed. Robbie and Levon had invited the rest of the Hawks up to check out the show, and by nightfall, the stadium was full of 15,000 people. Per usual, Dylan started with an acoustic set playing through many favorites, including Desolation Row, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, and Mr. Tambourine Man. The atmosphere was calm, the audience hanging on to every word Dylan was saying. When the Hawks took their place on stage, it was like a completely different show. The booing, the groaning, and the shouting started. Beginning with the first number Tombstone Blues, the crowd never stopped their disapproving yelping.
2: People hated it, they didn't like, they didn't disapprove, they violently hated it. <laughs> and we're like, what's this shit about, you <laughs> know, we're just playing some music, what, what's the big deal?
1: After the onslaught of the vitriol from the massive crowds, Dylan was intrigued by the prospect of having Levon and Robbie join him for the lengthy tour of the United States, Australia and Europe. However, Levon and Robbie were mixed. Both were taken aback from the backlash against Dylan. The fact that they were contributing to an electric sound and it was hated was hard to swallow. Additionally, the rest of the Hawks weren't involved. Bill Avis remembers a meeting back in New Jersey, following the two gigs to discuss what was next for the Hawks. The band had been through so much together. They had made a pact. They were in this together. The discussion ended with Levon driving to New York City with Avis and telling Grossman, Take us all, or don't take anybody. By September, Dylan was in Toronto, where they held rehearsals. The Hawks also had some prior engagements with stints at Friars Tavern and the pending court trial for their drug bust. And now with Dylan as their ally, he gave a disposition to the court explaining the importance of their artistic endeavors. Along with Levon's previous exploits with the underage girl and the detective, as mentioned in the last episode, the Hawks got off. No jail time. They were free to go.
0: All your
1: Their first stop on the Dylan tour was Austin, Texas. On Dylan's private jet, the Hawks flew from Toronto down to Austin to play the municipal auditorium. Unlike the Northeast, Dylan's electric act was handled well by the Southern crowds. Maybe it was that famous Southern hospitality. Nonetheless, they moved on to Dallas, where they were also pretty well received. One specific gig to note during this time was October 1st at Carnegie Hall in New York City. There were some boos, but the crowd was quickly won over by the end of the evening. A massive triumph from where Dylan was just a few months earlier. Levon later remarked at how exasperated Dylan was following the gig. They had finally broken through or so they thought. And while the Hawks primarily acted as the live group for Dylan, he took them into the studio in the fall as well. Dylan was trying to cut a new version of Can't You Please Crawl Out Your Window. He had attempted it while recording Highway 61 Revisited, but it never made the final cut. Now there's been much debate on when the recording with the Hawks took place. Two dates come to mind, either August 5th, 1965 or November 30th, 1965. Regardless, it was their first time in the studio with Dylan and yielded a release as a single that December that reached number 58 on the US Billboard Hot 100 and charted 17 on the UK charts in January of
0: 1966.
1: Dylan and the Hawks were back on the road after that. Through the south of the US for the remainder of 65, while booing was subdued in certain markets, ugly crowds reared their heads consistently throughout the rest of the tour. The Hawks would often record their live show and listen back to see if what was going wrong, scrapping for any information that might lead to a logical conclusion about the hostile crowds. But there was nothing there. it wasn't just the crowds that didn't like the Hawks' electric tenacity. People backstage started telling Dylan to get rid of the band. Some even had the audacity to do it in front of them.
0: He looked so truthful. Is this how he
1: feels? Lots of people
2: were telling Bob, you've got to get rid of these guys. They're ruining the music. Get rid of them. We love you. All this stuff. He never budged. He never took a step back.
1: A major turning point in the Hawks was when Levon had had it. After a particularly bad stint at the Back Bay Theatre in Boston, paired with a not-so-friendly two-night stint at Toronto's Massey Hall, where local press dubbed them as a third-rate young Street band, he checked out. Levon rightfully couldn't understand playing music for such a hateful group of people, especially when it was supposed to be the opposite. While taking a break from touring in New York, late one evening, Levon knocked on Robbie's door at the Irving Hotel, the place that they had made their temporary residence. He told Robertson he was done. Robbie tried to persuade him, to see the power in working with Dylan and the music they were creating. But Levon, always an independent spirit, a maverick, wanted to go out on his own. He also wasn't a fan of the massive machine that was touring with Dylan, Private planes, limos, gigs, rinse and repeat. And he definitely wasn't fond of Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman. The next morning, he headed south without telling a single soul. Home for an uncertain future. The next morning, Robertson had to break the news to the rest of the guys. Well, apparently Richard had somewhat known it took them all by shock. The Hawks were of mixed emotions. Sad at losing their friend and band leader, but also mad. How could he just disappear after they had such a tight kinship? Regardless, Levon was torn too, and he deemed what was best. On top of that, Robbie had to break the news to Bob. Was he going to be angry, resentful, Dylan was more confused at why Levon would leave without greener pastures secured. Nonetheless, they had gigs to play and had to bring up Bobby Gregg, the session player from Dylan's album to temporarily fill in on drums. The band headed west for a leg of the tour that took them from Seattle to upstate New York where they witnessed some more subdued crowds. An interesting mix of people from groups like the Black Panthers, Beat Poets, to the Hells Angels. They later stopped in Southern California for a stint of gigs. The Hawks were really excited exploring California for the first time, full of celebrity star power and the latest trends, and of course some of the best weed. He's a
0: real
1: Bob was staying at the famed Chateau Mormont, where Robbie met David Crosby of the Birds for the first time. They lit up and chatted about the Beatles. Rubber Soul had just been released. Specifically, tunes like Nowhere Man and Norwegian Wood were of discussion. Wrapping up the western US leg of the tour led the Hawks back to New York just in time for Christmas to spend some time with their families and break before a relentless 66 tour of Europe. Meanwhile, Levon headed to Mexico for an extended vacation, staying there, wasting away until he spent his last dime. He then headed back to Arkansas before heading to Florida with his friend, Kirby Penick, a musician. Realizing Florida had nothing for them, they found their way to New Orleans. To get by, Levon played amateur nights for prize money and mingled with local musicians, gamblers, dealers, and the mafia. Running out of cash, he was a busboy at a restaurant until he got fired for eating the food. He finally found his way out to an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. The money was amazing, but the work was dangerous. You could easily die out on those rigs, and many a time, Levon almost did. After a few months of hard labor, he took his money and went back to Arkansas to see his family. Apparently upon arriving home, his friend Paul Berry had said that Dylan had attempted to find him a few times. Obviously, Levon had been MIA. After staying in town for the Cotton Carnival, he borrowed some money from Barry and headed for California. Levon had become friends with saxophonist Bobby Keys, who had played with the Rolling Stones, various Beatles, and Joe Cocker, as well as hung out with Leon Russell, the famed musician and singer. Levon continued to go back and forth and play gigs with the Cape Brothers. And make some money, endlessly drifting. In the spring of 67, Levon was in Memphis, studying the local flavor of musicians like Booker T and the MGs, and watching television. He was lost, without his band or any clear direction. He was just existing, waiting for the next opportunity. The Hawks had to find a new drummer, Bobby Gregg was just a fill-in, and it was up to them to find a replacement for Levon, an impossible task. They had come to the conclusion that the best fit would be Sandy Koinikoff. Konikoff was from Buffalo, and in the early 60s was briefly imported from Buffalo by Ronnie Hawkins to take over from Levon on drums, while Helm moved his second guitar. Bob had also booked some studio time at Columbia in New York to record in January. A great time to also try out some new drummers. When Konnikoff arrived, the Hawks were stunned. He had looked different. He'd been studying drums and getting into jazz. Dressed in a beret and head to toe in black clothing, he now embodied the jazz lifestyle. The mismatch was obvious, but they carried on. Dylan had the group run through a few new tunes, She's Your Lover Now, and Tell Me Mama, which became a staple opener for the electric half of the 66 tour. Meanwhile, they continued on tour, Sandy on drums. He practiced religiously every evening, getting the arrangement down. After the session with the Hawks, at the request of producer Bob Johnson, Dylan headed to Nashville to cut a few tracks with some session musicians. Dylan came back with a few new tracks, including Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowland, which was a highlight. Bringing in at over 11 minutes, it was the longest song Robbie had heard. Around that same time, Robbie and Richard moved to a suite at the famed Chelsea Hotel. Rick was living with a girlfriend in New York, and Garth was traveling often between New York and London, Ontario, to visit his friends and family. Robbie later stated this on being roommates with Richard. I could talk to Richard about the big dream, getting a place to play and write, and where we could invent the sound, the music. Talking to him made the dream feel real. They spent a majority of their time during this period seeing bands coming through town, including the Velvet Underground, hanging out with local celebs, including Andy Warhol, and for Robbie, going to the movies with Richard to explore the newest films of the era, including work by John Lucadar and Roman Polanski. In February of 1966, Robbie was invited to join Dylan in Nashville to record at Columbia's A-Studio on Nashville's Music Row. Apart from Dylan, Robertson, Cooper, bassist Charlie McCoy, guitarist Joe South and Wayne Moss were a part of the sessions with Kenny Buttrey on drums. Dylan also had a piano installed in his Nashville hotel room, which Cooper would play to help Dylan write lyrics. Cooper would also teach the tunes to the musicians before Dylan arrived for the sessions. Robertson remembers the sessions as different than what he was used to, and he had this to say. Although everybody was warm and inviting, you could definitely tell that the Nashville guys were hoping we were roadies. On the first Nashville session on February 14th, Dylan successfully recorded Visions of Joanna, which he had attempted several times in New York also recorded was fourth time around which made it onto the album and a take of leopard skin pillbox hat which did not. The next day on February 15th the session began at 6 p.m. but Dylan simply sat in the studio working on lyrics while musicians played cards, napped and chatted. Finally at 4 a.m. Dylan called the musicians in and outlined the structure of the song. He counted off and the musicians fell in. He attempted his epic composition, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Kenny Buttrey recalled in Clint Hayen's Bob Dylan Behind the Shades Revisited. If you notice that record, that thing after the second chorus starts building and building like crazy, and everybody's just peaking it up, because we thought, man, this is going to be it. This is going to be the last chorus, and we got to put everything into it and he played another harmonica solo and back down to another verse and the dynamics had to drop back down to the verse kind of feel after about 10 minutes of this we were cracking up at each other what was going on i mean we peaked 5 minutes ago where do we go from here
0: with your matchbook songs and your gypsy
1: The next session began similarly. Dylan spent the afternoon writing lyrics and the session continued into the early hours of February 17th. When the musicians began to record Stuck Inside Mobile" with Memphis Blues Again, after several musical revisions and false starts, the 14th take was the version selected for the album. The first track Robertson remembers playing on was during the session for Obviously Five Believers. The nerves were real. Robertson had to prove himself.
2: I go to Nashville, Tennessee with Bob Dylan, and we're recording a record called Blonde on Blonde. In Nashville, they don't like other people coming into their circle. So it was an uncomfortable experience, you know, just to be like this guy that, you know, was kind of being forced on them. And, uh, and you could feel it. You could feel the thing. And uh, and then there was a song we recorded. I think it might have been the song, obviously, Five Believers or something. And so Bob said, you know, uh, Robbie's going to play the guitar on this one. So you could see the, the attitude and everything. And it wasn't, like, brutal. But, you know, it was subtle enough that it, you know, but... And, but you could you could feel it. And then I played, and they realized I did something that none of them did. It was a different kind of guitar playing. And that was okay then. And they accepted me into this thing.
1: Best described as a rowdy, love blues song, led by Robbie's ripping leads and Charlie McCoy's harmonica, within four takes the song was done. The mood had changed. Robertson was accepted. The kid could play. The song was later described by music critic Robert Shelton as the best R&B song on the album. After the sessions, the Hawks and Dylan headed to California one more time for some more shows. The Hawks heard that Levon may be in LA and Robbie tried to connect with him, but he got no answer. Robbie recalls spending time with the Byrds frontman Roger McGinn, He had just released his latest single, Eight Miles High, and he played it for him and Dylan. Dylan wasn't overly impressed with the sound. Begin had argued it was his interpretation of John Coltrane. By this point, Sandy Koninkoff wasn't fitting in. After being on the road with Dylan for some months, it just wasn't clicking. Dylan knew it, the Hawks knew it, and Sandy knew it. With his farewell, the guys were back to square one, finding a new drummer. Dylan had seen Mickey Jones play with Johnny Rivers in Texas, and Jones had an extensive past starting as a drummer for Trini Lopez before hooking up with Rivers. Now of course Mickey had shoes to fill, but Jones was no slouch. He packed a powerful punch on the drums. He was welcomed into the fold immediately, especially by Garth, who helped him climatize to the material. Finally, well in Los Angeles, they did meet up with Levon. And while they caught up, they saw Levon in a quite sad state, not playing drums and just sort of wasting away in their view. Before hitting Europe proper, Dylan and the Hawks hit up Hawaii, their first venture outside of North America. Garth was particularly excited to be in Hawaii and was a natural sightseer, wanted to check out Pearl Harbor. They played the Saturday night at the International Center in downtown Honolulu. Just like the local subdued attitude, the audience for that evening was very receptive to the electric Dylan sound, and Mickey Jones was settling in quite nicely. The international tour continued throughout Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and India before arriving in Stockholm, Sweden. When arriving in Europe, they were officially joined by documentary filmmaker D.A. Pennybaker. With his crew, included a cameraman and editor Howard Alk. Pennybaker had joined Dylan earlier in 65 for his film Don't Look Back, that featured Dylan's tour of England. But the new film was brokered by Grossman in association with ABC television to create a new musical special. At first, the Hawks found it weird to have cameras following them around all the time. As the Europe tour waned on, it was obvious that Dylan wasn't exactly healthy. His amphetamine addiction was worsening. He looked skinnier, more pale, and as Robbie later noted, Every day I saw him getting a little bit more run down. It was upsetting, but beyond trying to get him to eat, there wasn't much I could do or say. The audience didn't get much better in Europe either. Denmark, Ireland, Wales, and England were all met with the same typical hostile crowds. In Liverpool, a girl stormed the stage with a pair of scissors. The venue's staging was practically on the same level as the crowd, making it easier for them to get aggressive with the band. Then came the famous Dylan Judas moment. They were playing at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester.
0: I don't believe you. You're a liar!
1: This moment fully encapsulates Dylan and the Hawks' ideology. Forget the fans, just play. While stopping over in London for a few days, the Hawks got to rub shoulders with some real big stars. Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones often visited as well as Keith Richards. Johnny Cash also happened to stop by, predating Dylan's later collaboration with Cash a few years later. Cash was practically as high as Dylan, but it led to an impromptu jam session with Dylan bringing out his guitar and playing Hank Williams' I'm So Lonely I Could Cry, a truly historic moment. Moving on to Paris, France, Robbie met his future wife, Dominique, a fellow Canadian, French Canadian to be specific, as they were wandering the streets. Robbie, entrenched by her beauty, invited her to the show the next evening. The Parisians weren't exactly the warmest audience, as you can imagine, and were especially angry after Dylan hung a massive American flag behind his set. It also happened to be his birthday that evening. Truly an event to remember. After quickly stopping off in France, the guys were back in London. This time, the Beatles wanted to hang out with Dylan. They asked if there was a good record player, as they wanted to show Bob their new album. Of course, there was rumours that Dylan had turned on the Beatles to weed in New York a few years back, beginning their experimentation with drugs. Nevertheless, the Beatles and their road manager Mal Evans showed up. Especially Paul was eager to show the record, and they listened through Eleanor Rigby, Taxman, and Tomorrow Never Knows. The album would later go on to be released as Revolver. The face that keeps in later that evening, Lennon came back to hang out. This time, Baker wanted to get something on film. Dylan wasn't in a great state to film, slurring his words. You can see this in the later unfinished film, Eat the Document. Meanwhile, the European tour was unwinding, going from touring in beat-up cars through Canada and the United States to touring the world in private jets, rubbing shoulders with famous people. The tour culminated in the famous Royal Albert Hall shows, A Two-Night Affair. On top of the ornery crowd, the show is packed with famous musicians and apparently royalty. It was the last time for the group to go out and really thrash for a few hours. After putting all into it, exhausted, the band and Dylan were back in the car, back to the hotel, when it was announced that the Beatles were coming to pay another visit. When Robbie and Rick were freshening up, Albert Grossman frantically called to come to Dylan's suite. Something was wrong. Dylan was delirious, exhausted and barely audible. In an attempt to get him to a state of consciousness, they ran a bath when there was a knock on the door. It was the Beatles. Not knowing what to do, Robbie was trying to control the situation. He came back into the room to see Dylan drowning in the bathtub. Let's just say Dylan didn't make it to the hangout that night with the Beatles. The tour was done, and it was now time to head back stateside to New York. Garth Hudson and Mickey Jones in typical fashion decided to take an ocean liner back to the US, and Robbie stayed in London an extra few days to hang out with his new muse Dominique. The Hawks were even more battle-hardened, and perhaps more ready than ever, to spread their wings and start creating their own music. While they continued to work with Dylan, what is about to unfold? in the later half of the 1960s, is what we now know as the band. First, congratulations to the winners of the official band t-shirt contest courtesy of Periscope Productions and the official web store of the band. I hope you enjoy your merch and look forward to more contests in the future. Secondly, I want to give a big thank you to our continued supporters, Tim Peretta and Kenneth Rockburn. Your support and donations mean a lot to making this show even better week to week. Third, I want to thank the amazing people who provide the music for this show. First up, Adam Trom, who provided the amazing track you're listening to right now, Levon's Barn. Make sure you check him out at his website, adamtromguitar.com. Also, every link in the description of this podcast episode. Also providing this music, the song that you hear throughout the show, Midnight North, and also songs by Audionautix as well. Remember, you can check out our Spotify playlist. It features music from Ronnie Hawkins, John Hammond Jr., Bob Dylan, the band, and their respective solo careers, and more. Always remember to check us out on social media. We've been putting way more effort into providing great content for you there with unique photos. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at The Band Podcast.
0: Scratch, draw, knocking out the sweetest and us his all. was the last time I'd see him.
1: This show is hosted by Tyrell Listen, produced by Tegan Chevrier and Tyrell Listen, written by Tyrell Listen and researched by Tyrell Listen and Fiona Chevrier, as well as edited by Tegan Chevrier. The band of history is not endorsed by the band or any affiliated stakeholders. It's intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. All audio clips are registered trademarks of the copyright of the original trademark or copyright owners. The
0: blue notes bouncing off the blues, do feeling every line. light still lives in that barn and levon's on my mind his light still lives
3: achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. What's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem?
0: What's the problem?
3: Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would
0: shop? Would shop?
3: Would you kill?
0: Yes. <laughs> My mom dead. My mom right
3: there. From airship.